1: This is the History of Islam podcast. I'm Elias Bouhadad. By the year 615 AD, the total number of Muslims excluding children who had migrated from Mecca to the lands of Abyssinia had exceeded 80. Although we do not know much about how exactly the great escape was planned, whether if it was Muhammad himself who personally directed every aspect of the migration or whether his contributions simply stopped at giving his followers the recommendation to flee to Abyssinia and it was then they who independently dealt with the business of embarking on the hard journey westwards and across the Red Sea. However it was done, the migration was executed perfectly organised in great secrecy and carried out unobtrusively, many of Muhammad's followers left in small groups, siphoning out of Mecca like a leaky tap that you just don't quite notice. Unlike the later hijra or migration from Mecca to Medina, the migration to Abyssinia had a 100% success rate. For example, there are no reports of any of Muhammad's followers being caught and dragged back to Mecca in chains. Welcome back to the History of Islam podcast, episode 17 Abyssinia. Although the migration to Abyssinia is widely considered a fleeing from Mecca in order to avoid persecution, not all of those who made the journey to the lands of the Negus were amongst the bottom class of Muhammad's followers. The migrants actually came from various different backgrounds. Nearly every clan in Mecca saw a loss even the great houses of the Quraysh were affected. A few notable Muslims amongst the migrants who were not slaves or from weak clans are Uthman ibn Affan and with him his wife Ruqayya, daughter of the Prophet Muhammad himself, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, a cousin of the Prophet and Abu Hudayfa ibn Utbah. I have chosen these specific individuals in order to make three quick points just to highlight some things that I believe are of importance. Number one, Muhammad allowed his daughter Ruqayyah to migrate to Abyssinia even though she did not need to. She was a member of the Hashim clan, so she, just like her father, was well protected. She was not at risk of any harm whatsoever. Now, it's impossible for us to get into the mind of Muhammad and find out the true motivations for the decisions that he made one reason for why he may have allowed his very own daughter to take on the risk of migrating to Abyssinian lands was in order to increase the morale, the sense of solidarity within the Muslim ranks. If there were any people who were on the fence about leaving, then the knowledge that their Prophet's very own daughter would be making the journey, the same journey that they may be making, would result in them becoming more inclined to make the journey themselves. And, For those who had already decided that they would be embarking on the trek westwards, Ruqayya's presence would result in the others feeling more optimistic, more hopeful about the migration's success. Or it could simply be that Ruqayya's husband Uthman had decided that he would be migrating no matter what, and so his wife, subject to her husband's whims, would have been simply dragged along. The second issue that I want to highlight and emphasise is that In the migration of all these individuals, we see that it was not just the weak, it was not just the poor, it was not just the unprotected who fled Mecca, even those whose lives were not at any apparent risk chose to immigrate. Ja'far was from the Bani Hashim and Uthman was himself a wealthy man from the powerful Abd al clan. The third and final point concerns Abu Hudayfa ibn Utba. Who is he? He is a son of Utba ibn Rabia. Who is Utbah ibn Rabi'ah? Well, we met Utbah not too long ago in episode 15 and we saw that he was amongst the leading men of the Quraysh, the chief of the powerful and prominent Abd al-Shams clan. Well, Abu Hudayfa was his son and he was a Muslim who migrated to Abyssinia. The migration to Abyssinia caused a notable dent in the city of Mecca. Even the great houses who opposed Muhammad saw people from amongst them silently slip away in the night and abandon them. In a way, this was the thing that the opponents of Muhammad and the opponents of Islam had feared the most. It was the thing that they feared greatly. For them, Muhammad's religion was nothing more than a device that could only tear the very fabric of Meccan society. As I have explained previously and extensively, the Bedouin tribal society that led life in Mecca put the tribe, the family, those who shared your blood, at the very top of one's priorities in life. Muhammad's preaching resulted in that list of priorities to be reshuffled, displaced, rearranged so that suddenly the family was not the most important thing for the followers of Muhammad. It was their faith, their religion, Islam was the most important thing in their lives. When Muhammad sanctioned the move to Abyssinia, Abu Hudayfa did not care what his father Uthba thought of him migrating. He did not stop to think of the shame and the dishonour that his father would face if he abandoned him. He did not allow any of that to influence his decision at all. That was because his religion had displaced his family as the most important thing in his life. He just packed his bags and left. This was unheard of in Arabian society. The whole Arabian social system, the very way of life of the Quraysh, was now no longer simply under threat. By sanctioning the migration, Muhammad had caused an upheaval in Mecca. Families were being separated, and now the tentacles of his influence were now being made clearly visible for all to witness. Muhammad had struck a solid blow upon pagan society. Quraysh's way of life was under attack. The leaders of the Quraysh were determined to quickly respond and remedy this situation which had caused them much dishonour. Their efforts were further accelerated by the news that the Muslims who had migrated to Abyssinia had been well-received. A woman from the Mahzun clan known as Umm Salama, who, along with her husband, was one of the early converts to Islam. She was one of those who had migrated and she tells us that upon reaching the land of Abyssinia, the bands of Muslims were treated kindly. The Negus, which is the title of the rule of Abyssinia, granted the Muslims his protection and thus guaranteed their safety and the ability of the migrants to not only live in his lands, but also to worship freely. In response, Quraysh commissioned a delegation headed by two men with the task of bringing the migrants back to Mecca. At the head of the delegation, Amr ibn al-'As, and to assist him, Abdullah ibn Abi Rabia. The two men were chosen very carefully. Amr was a man renowned for his cunning and intelligence, and as far as the Quraysh were concerned, Amr was, in their calculations, more than capable of convincing the Negus to extradite the migrants. But that's not all. Both the men had close family members who had migrated to Abyssinia. Amr ibn al As's brother Hisham had fled Mecca. So for Amr, the diplomatic mission was not just official business. It was also personal. It was a personal matter for him. And so the motivation of Quraysh's envoys was to say the least, extremely high. Upon reaching Abyssinia, Amr did not seek an assembly with the Negus immediately. Instead, he opted to meet with various members of the Negus's court. Court officials, bishops, influential members of the clergy, generals, basically anyone who was worth a damn in the Negus's court would have expected a visit from Amr. Every person he met he would present with lavish gifts, the best of what Mecca had to offer. In Abyssinia, leather and ornate leatherworks in particular were highly prized. The Abyssinians loved them. A significant proportion of Mecca's trade was the selling of leather and leatherworks to places like Abyssinia. Well, to put it bluntly, Amr, with his gifts, with his bribes, had bought the support of the bishops and the generals and the influential figures of the Negus' court, so that the next day... When Amr stood before the Negus and asked for the return of the migrants, he would not be standing alone. When Amr finally sought an assembly with the Negus himself, the man who had the all-important final say, he entered again with lavish gifts and presents in hand. It seems the Quraysh spared no expense for the success of this mission. The Negus accepted the gifts that he had been presented, Amr, now brimming with confidence, stepped forward to address the Negus, and he said, O king, some foolish juvenile men and women of our people have been misled to your kingdom." So immediately Amr has labeled the migrants as fools, peasants, people unimportant. In Meccan society, in Amran's mind, by doing this, there is no way that the word of fools, the word of the low class, will take precedence over his, a noble from the Quraysh. Furthermore, by labeling the migrants as misguided and misled, he adds to the sentiment that he is trying to present to the negus that the migrants are simpletons who do not know what they are doing. As we have mentioned previously, the migrants had amongst them the likes of Ja'far, the likes of Uthman, who were from the upper echelons of Meccan society. So what Amr was trying to present to Negus was false. Anyway, Amr continued saying, They have departed from their people's religion and they did not join yours. They have innovated and invented a new religion. A religion that is unknown to us. A religion that is unknown to you. So again, what Amal is trying to do here is continue to reinforce the idea that he is presenting that the migrants have dishonorably abandoned their own people, their own ideals, their own traditions. And in a way, what he's saying is, if... These migrants have treated their very own people, people of their own blood, their fathers, their brothers and so on in such a manner. How can you trust them? How can you expect anything but the worst from them? So again, he's given the Negus reasons to distrust the migrants and reasons to...
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: treat the migrants in an unfavorable manner which will lead to him agreeing to extradite the migrants back to Mecca. Amr tries to ignite a sense of pride in the Nigas in order to anger him by saying that the migrants had left their religion, the religion of the Quraysh in Mecca, but they did not turn to Christianity, the religion of the Neegers. Instead they had come up with their own religion, which he labels as an innovation to remove any legitimacy that they may have. And he adds on to this idea by saying that the people of Mecca have never heard of this religion, and the people of Abyssinia have never heard of this religion. Amr then ends with the final statement Wakadboetna بِمَا We have been sent to you, O King, from the nobles of their people, from their fathers, from their uncles, from their families, to beg you to return them to them, because they are the people who know them best, and the people most aware of their transgressions. With the termination of that brief speech right on cue the generals the members of the court who Amr had met and previously came into contact with all chimed in at once and voiced their unanimous support for Amr's case despite the overwhelming tirade of vocal support in the court for Amr, the negus was not quite swayed living up to his just reputation he simply refused to hand the migrants over to the Quraysh without allowing them the opportunity to voice their case first. The migrants were summoned to the court by the Negus. Jafar, who seems to have been the leader, or at the very least the spokesperson for the migrants, was the man who carried out the task of presenting the case of the Muslims. O King, we were an uncivilised, ignorant people worshipping idols, consuming carrion, indulging in excesses, committing great evil. We would cut off and disregard our families if it suited us. We would treat our neighbours poorly. The strong amongst us devoured the weak. That was until God sent upon us a messenger from amongst us, a man whose lineage we knew, whose character we knew, He invited us to acknowledge God's unity and shed the idols and the stones that we and our forefathers before us had worshipped. He ordered us to be honest in our speech, honest in our actions. He commanded us to be good to our families, good to our neighbours and to avoid the shedding of blood and what was forbidden. We have been commanded to worship God and God alone with no partners or middlemen to pray to him, to give zakat, and to fast. I have said in the past that the History of Islam podcast will be just that, history. It will avoid theological matters as much as possible. However, what Jafar's speech provides us is an answer to a question that I have received from many of you. What is it exactly that Muhammad was preaching in his early days in Mecca? What did the Muslims believe in? What was expected of them once they converted? Well, Jafar provides us, in a nutshell, with a concise answer to all those questions. Muhammad's primary goal is clear for all to see. His main concern was the unity of God. The cornerstone of Islam is monotheistic belief. There is one God and one God alone. So for all of those who have asked me questions about early Islamic belief, I hope you are now satisfied. I hope that Jafar's speech has giving you that answer. If that's not quite enough, then just take a look at this episode's episode guide and I will put on there different versions, uh, different translations of the full speech that Jafar delivered from the original sources. The early sources go into much greater detail about the debates that unfold in the Negus's court when Amr tries to recover the migrants from Abyssinia. I think it is suffice for us to say that Amr ultimately failed in his mission. The Negus, sympathising with the monotheistic Muslim cause, refuses to hand them over, and Amr makes his journey back over the Red Sea empty-handed. Next episode, we will be looking at the major developments that begin to unfold back in Mecca as our story moves forward. Before I end, however, I would like to dedicate a bit of time to answer a question from a listener which I believe to be of great importance. I also want to let you know that as we are nearing the one-year anniversary of the podcast, I have some special things coming up in association with the Agora Podcast Network, which, as you know, the History of Islam podcast is a member of so look forward to those also i want to assure you that episodes will start to be released a bit more consistently from now on the question from the listener that i'm going to address is about historiography if there's something that you do not care about and you are not that interested in then feel free to shut off now i'd like to say goodbye now and uh, thank you for listening and i'll be back next episode for those of you that are interested in historiography the weird ones amongst you then by all means stay the question comes from listener adrian from switzerland and he says hey i am really enjoying your podcast thanks for your work i have one problem with the podcast i don't know what i am hearing is it the history of islam according to traditional narrative or are you telling what historians think is a fact You tell this story in great detail and it is hard to believe that we would have such accurate and reliable sources from this time. I read at other places that we don't really know anything for sure about the beginning of Islam. But you are telling this stuff as if it is a fact. Okay, so my response to this message is firstly to use this as an opportunity to clarify that the History of Islam podcast is intended to be an introductory work. I want this podcast to be accessible to the average individual who knows practically nothing about the history of Islam. I also want it to be somewhat entertaining so that people can continue to listen and learn without losing interest or dropping out due to boredom. I do not think it is appropriate for an introductory work, a podcast of this scope, targeted at the majority of people to delve into matters of historiography nor do I think it appropriate for myself to discuss or give my two cents about historical debates through this medium. The podcast is intended as a first step for people wanting to learn more about the history of Islam. With that being said, I do not aim to mislead or misinform people. So, number one, on the bibliography on the blog, I have listed the materials used in the production of this podcast. It includes a wide array of sources from a similarly diverse background and authorship. Books containing the traditional narrative are included. For example, if you go onto the bibliography and you look at the Arabic section, pretty much all the sources on the Arabic section are those that adhere to the traditional narrative. Number two, the question mentions, are you telling what historians think is a fact? i just like to mention that there is no consensus amongst all historians as to what is fact and what is not. Different historians would support different things, different theories, different arguments. Number three, the question also mentions, I read at other places that we don't really know anything for sure about the beginning of Islam. Okay, so for those of you that may have never heard of this before, in the 70s there was a wave of revisionist thought headed by historians such as Patricia Crone, who basically rejected pretty much all Islamic sources and tried to argue that basically much of early Islamic history was in fact a myth. Today, this revisionist movement has practically no support and some of the historians who were key players uh, in this movement have changed their minds in later publications. One of the reasons I actually started this podcast was because I couldn't find anything out there that was like Mike Duncan's The History of Rome that catered for Islamic history, a major and very rich component of global history. And I just found it strange that no one had got round to addressing it. And I remember listening to the History of Byzantium podcast, where the creator of that podcast tried to briefly go over Islamic history as it overlapped with Byzantium. And in doing so, he invited a man named Tom Holland for an interview. Tom Holland is a writer. He's a novelist. He wrote novels initially uh, before he began to dabble in works of history. And in 2012, he published a book, which is in the bibliography, by the way, uh, on the blog, titled In the Shadow of the Sword, The Battle for Global Empire and the End of the Ancient World. Very dramatic title. In this book, Tom Holland attempts to I would say, revived the revisionist thought from the 70s. The book is full of regurgitated ideas, many of which have been refuted, and some of the arguments he makes in the book are utterly absurd, with no evidence whatsoever. So, I remember listening to the interview on the History of Byzantium podcast, and it was kind of the final straw which led me to creating this podcast. My point is that it is... Wrong to automatically strike all traditional sources off and just assume that they are false. Especially for a podcast like this one. A podcast provides a specific service which is to make Islamic history accessible to anyone. It is a first step, a foundation which can be built upon later. For example, by taking up further reading uh, using the suggested books from the bibliography. No matter what, Anyone who wants to learn Islamic history is going to have to be exposed in one way or another uh, to the traditional sources. So it is literally impossible for this podcast to not contain information from the traditional sources. Everything we know about the Islamic history uh, uh, in its early period and everything from Muhammad's life is from these so-called traditional sources, which are at the same time the earliest materials that relate to us Muhammad's life. I'm going to stop there just to prevent this from becoming a ramble. If anyone has any follow-up questions, I'll be more than happy to answer them via email uh, and provide further clarification. If a lot of you ask the same questions, then I will consider addressing the matter in uh, greater detail in a better planned answer in a future episode. That's all from me for now. I'll see you next episode where we're going to have some major developments as our story moves further forward and we get closer to the drama of early islamic history that's all from me for now goodbye
2: even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus